So you really want to learn how to trade, know when to double and when to fade, learn the candlestick charts, master the pattern recognition arts, identify the cup and the handles, decipher the messages of the candles? Can you see a bearish evening star or know when you've taken risk too far? Have you ever traded into a double top or watched the value of your call options drop? Have you tried to navigate a descending triangle while you watched your precious profits dangle? Can you spot resistance and discover support? Because day trading is no little league sport. It takes patience, a plan, risk management, and finesse. We're about to get into it on the Investopedia Express. You asked and we answered your questions about trading and you had hundreds. Kenny Hit the Bid Glick joins the show later to help tackle your trading questions as we roll on with Financial Literacy Month. But first, here's what's on the tracks. U.S. equity markets are coming off of a choppy week and the first negative week in four. Volatility blew in with the spring showers and the Biden administration leaked a plan to drop a bill that would more than double capital gains taxes for American taxpayers earning more than $1 million a year from their profits on their asset sales, including stocks. That blew an icy wind through the stock market Thursday, but the sun came shining back in on Friday when investors realized that A, raising taxes by that much is a real long shot for the Biden administration, and B, even if it does, only 0.3% of U.S. taxpayers will be impacted by this. There are very wealthy 0.3% with a lot of influence, a lot of market cap in their portfolios, and a lot of access to the top lobbyists in Washington. We'll hear more about the president's plan to raise capital gains taxes and possibly other taxes on the wealthy this Wednesday when he presents his American Families Plan to Congress. He may also outline a plan to close the carried interest loophole cherished by investment banks and private equity firms. Carried interest is that compensation fund managers and private equity firms earn on the fund's profits. It's taxed at the capital gains rate, and it has been a gravy train for the investment industry for years. Country clubs throughout Florida, Westchester, Silicon Valley, and Greenwich, Connecticut are freaking out about this right now. As for those capital gains taxes, they haven't been above 25% since 2003. The S&P 500 is up 275% in those 18 years, and a lot of long-term investors have done very well over that time frame. If they smell higher taxes, they may just take some of those profits out of the stock market and sit on them. But where else are they going to find returns? Is there any historical precedent for us to look and see how higher capital gains taxes impacted the stock market in the past 50 years? Oh, you betcha, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's take it back to 2012 when it became clear that higher capital gains taxes were coming. The S&P 500 traded sideways for the first few months of the year, closing roughly where it had been in March when those taxes were announced. Then 2013 turned out to be a great year for stocks that started in the beginning of January and rallied all the way until 2018. In fact, according to our pal Ryan Dietrich at LPL Financial, the S&P 500 has rallied two out of the past four times since capital gains tax were raised, going all the way back to 1969. 1969 and 1976 were the years that didn't happen because the economy was in really bad shape during those periods. But in 1987 and 2013, the next six months for stocks were huge. Speaking of numbers, let's get into some number soup to catch up on where things stand more than a quarter of the way through the year. Men lie, women lie, numbers don't. (laughs) No, they don't, Jay-Z. No, they don't. Well, there have been a billion COVID-19 vaccines administered worldwide as of last Friday. Three million people have died from the virus. 14 million U.S. jobs have been added since May of 2020. 22 million jobs were lost in total during the pandemic. There's been $30 trillion in global policy stimulus in 2020 and 2021. There have been 201 central bank interest rate cuts since February of 2020. 
There have been 989 since the great financial crisis. Central banks have purchased $1 billion of financial assets every hour since February 2020 and $21 trillion worth since 2009. That's pretty darn accommodative. There's been $4.5 trillion in issuance of U.S. Treasuries in 2021 alone. That's on pace to easily exceed the GDP of Germany this year. Who says you can't spend your way out of a crisis? Since the lows of last March, there's been $51 trillion in global equity market cap gains. That is the fastest and the largest rally for global stocks of all time. $602 billion has flowed into the U.S. equity markets in the past five months, an all-time record, and that's more than the prior 12 years combined. Speaking of combined, the combined market caps of Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and Facebook total $8.2 trillion. That's more than the market caps of all emerging market equity indexes combined, all of them. And for all the noise that Bitcoin has made, and it's made a lot, the combined market cap of Bitcoin and all the other cryptocurrencies totals $2.3 trillion today. That is only roughly 1% of the $112 trillion equity market and the $118 trillion bond market but it's climbing. Feeling bubbly? Let's check in on the U.S. stock market valuation. The S&P 500 currently trades at a price-to-earnings ratio of around 26. The CAPE ratio, or the Schiller PE as it's called, which looks at the past 10 years of earnings and adjusts for inflation, registers an even higher rating of 37.6. That's a two-decade high. It peaked in December 1999 to 44.2. We're up there, but not all the way. But there are dozens of stocks in the S&P 500 that trade above the index's P.E. ratio, and you know them well. Tesla trades at more than 1,000 times trailing earnings, and NVIDIA trades at 86 times trailing earnings. But there are so many more. Still, investors' appetites seem to be insatiable. Some $98 billion was added to U.S. mutual funds and ETFs alone in March, the most in a month ever. That said, there are signs of exhaustion in some parts of the market. SPACs, those special purpose acquisition companies which were the darlings of 2020, seem to have hit a wall. The SPAC and new issue ETF is down more than 10% from its recent highs, and SPAC issuance has ground to a halt. In the first quarter alone, nearly 300 SPAC mergers were filed, but in April, only 10 deals have been announced so far, a 90% drop from March. The drumbeat of tighter regulation is growing louder, and that could scare investors away. Last week, the Securities and Exchange Commission issued accounting guidance that would classify SPAC warrants as liabilities instead of equity. Similar to call options, warrants give investors a right to buy a company's shares in the future at a specified price. When share prices are rising, investors can profit quickly by exercising their warrants. It's one of the things that makes SPAC so attractive. While that doesn't impact a SPAC's business operations, if it becomes law, some SPACs will have to go back and restate their financial results to properly account for warrants, which could slow down their IPO process. Translation, financial results are going to look terrible for a lot of these SPACs that took pre-profit companies to market, and that's not going to sit right for some investors. But hey, that's not stopping our man Cassius Cuvay. He's taking the sell-off in SPACs in stride, and he dropped a new video from Hawaii last week. Just chilling. Ah. Spacks are just chilling. Check out just chilling. Check it. Cassius is back. If you thought last week was busy, tighten your helmet and put in your mouthpiece because it's game on this week. Earnings season is at full tilt with 30% of the S&P 500 reporting results just this week. We'll get results from Tesla, Amazon, Alphabet, Apple, and Ford just to name a few of the headliners. Earnings are coming in much better than expected and expectations were already pretty high. 
but it's the future outlooks that we care about more when these companies present their report cards. Tesla reports on Monday, and while the electric vehicle maker is expected to show a doubling of sales to $10.48 billion, up from $6 billion a year ago, the company is under regulatory scrutiny for two recent fatal crashes involving the use of its autopilot feature. CEO Elon Musk has defended the feature and safety of Tesla's vehicles, but investors will want more details. Tesla also has a very long position in Bitcoin, having added $1.5 billion worth of the cryptocurrency to its treasury last quarter. While Bitcoin's price is in a tailspin, it could have a material effect on its books. Apple won't be able to live up to last quarter's high barb when it posted over $100 billion in sales, but look for something between $75 to $80 billion. We want to see what iPad and Mac demand was last quarter, especially given Apple's rollout last week of models and designs for those products, along with its new chipset. Apple's also expected to increase its dividend payout and boost its buyback allowance, and investors, especially Warren Buffett, whose Berkshire Hathaway owns 10% of the shares outstanding, love that. Also, there's a new iPhone 13 coming later this year. What's the company projecting in terms of sales? Look for those earnings previews and previews for all the most widely held stocks on Investopedia. We've got them for you. The Federal Open Market Committee of the Federal Reserve meets this Tuesday and Wednesday on interest rates and monetary policy. We should not expect the Fed to make any changes to the federal funds rate because it keeps telling us that that's a 2023 thing. Still, more members of the FOMC have tightened their timelines about when that should happen, given the strength of the economic recovery. Inflation is still lower than where the Fed would like it, even though almost everything we buy is more expensive today than it was six months ago. Investors want to hear that the Fed will keep buying up to $120 billion of government bond purchases every month, which has laid a nice safety net under the capital markets. On Friday, we'll get reports on U.S. personal income and spending. Retail sales spiked last month as the first round of stimulus checks hit bank accounts. Another wave went out in the past two weeks. Are consumers putting that money back into the economy, or are we really not ready to spend again like it's 2019? We'll find out on Friday. You asked, and we're here to answer your trading questions as part of our Ask Me Anything series for Financial Literacy Month. We focused this week on trading, and we literally got hundreds of smart questions from you and from our social media followers. Now, I'm no trader. I'm terrible at it. But I do know a few really good ones and folks who have been doing this for quite a while. And Kenny, hit the big click, is one of them. And he's a good friend of Investopedia. Welcome, Kenny. Thanks for having me on. Good to see you, my friend. And give us a little backstory. How did you get into trading and when? What got you into this? Wow. Let's go back. Well, I was doing stand-up comedy. Liz going back, back. This is broker days. So a uh, guy came up to me after one of my shows and he's wearing a suit. I'm all excited thinking he's an agent. He turned out to be just a stockbroker right out of Long Island. You saw the movie Boiler Room. That was where I was. He's like, hey, you're a funny guy. Why don't you come out to Long Island? We'll teach you how to sell stocks and make a little bit of money. There I was going into Long Island, just confused about what was going on. I heard people screaming IPO, IPO, IPO. I didn't even know what that was. Fast forward a couple of years, we jumped from firm to firm to firm. Obviously, you've seen the movies. And I was ready to leave the industry. And that's when day trading basically was born. The Soas Bandits, Harvey Hauken, and one of my fraternity brothers, I met him at a, at a Pearl Jam concert. And I was telling him the plight of my uh, venture into finance. And I was just like, this isn't for me. I, I'm not, I don't want to be a sales guy. And he's like, hey, listen, we're starting to trade our own accounts. There's new technology. You could probably do what you want to do. And I thought that was just the most amazing uh, coincidence. So I went in there. Next thing you know, I'm learning how to trade on the SO system, select net. Some of these things don't even exist anymore. You know, back in the day when we trade in eighths and quarters of a point. And uh, I had a knack for it. You know, the learning curve for me 
did not happen. I got right into it, taught myself how to play the fades and, you know, the, the opening gap reversion trades. And I just got really, really good, really, really quickly. Then I got a little cocky, market crashed. I started trying to pick bottoms. It got blown up like everybody else does. You know, you blow, you got to blow up yourself three or four times in a career. And then fast forward, you know, I'll just jump ahead light years. I took everything, all the hard knocks that I learned and I start using VWAP. And here I am now, and it's basically all I do. I have this one beautiful setup that I look for every single day. It keeps me occupied. And now all I do is teach people about what I've learned and try to steer people away from everything I've learned that doesn't work. Well, obviously, it's changed so much trading with the technology, but also the way things are priced. We don't price in eighths or quarters anymore. But there's also a lot more market participants in the game right now. And you got the high-speed traders. you got the, you know, the algorithms powered by the smartest computers in the world. But how does an individual trader like you try to make their living on a day-in, day-out basis? That's a great question because as the market got more volume, there's more participants and, of course, more algorithms, what I started to watch is the VWAP. You know, VWAP was around for, you know, for as long as I was a trader. And well, what does VWAP was, stand for? VWAP, you, you, you talk about it all the time. Yeah, volume-weighted average price. So when you're talking about the big guys, the, the money, you want to piggyback the big guys. It, we're, we're insignificant fleas, day traders. We're just trying to get a little piece of the action and just piggyback on where that money's going. Volume weighted average price is giving you the indication that you're on the right side of the trade. You're traveling with the big boys. And then I've used something called multiple time frame VWAPs. It's, you know, again, Brian Shannon, he calls it anchor VWAP. It's been a godsend to me because it's really helping you define the trade. Here's where you want to get in. Here's your risk and there's your reward and staring at you right on the trade. And it really comes down to, you probably heard this word a million times, discipline. I could show you a trade that works 95% of the time. People will still figure out how to lose money. Right. So many people often do that because they lose discipline, they lose the focus, and they break their own rules. What's your daily trading routine? Are, are you in and out of trades every minute? Are you in and out of trades every hour, every day? Do you have multiple time frames you mentioned? But how, what is that kind of daily rhythm for you? Most of the time, I, I've gone back to the origins of day trading. I try to trade for the day, live for the day, live forever. At the end of the day, I want to be flat. I want to conquer the day and then go on to a new battle tomorrow. I do something which is the right way of doing it. A lot of people become a swing trader because their day trade didn't go well. Well, I ain't going to sell it here. I guess I'll hold it for a day. And then they're waiting for it. Next thing you know, it's three weeks later, they're an investor. For me, it's I'm right or I'm wrong. This is where I'm going to cut the trade off. So I am, you know, I've gone back. I like people call me the grandfather of day trading because I've been doing this since pretty much day one. And here I am 23 years later, pretty much doing the same thing. And it's taken me 20 something years to really find that niche. And for me, it's VWAP, day trading, and just sticking with the reversion trades and just being on the right side of the VWAP is just, it, it's where you want to be. You keep a, a journal, do you keep a trading journal that, or did you in the early part of your career where you were like, I know when I did this, that didn't work. When I did this, that worked. How do, how do you sort of stay on top of what you learn and, and add to that education as you grow as a trader? It's amazing. It's a great question. You know why? Because I tell people to keep a journal themselves. Now it's a little easier. I used to use, I think I have it nearby. I used to use a, you know, a composition book for like the kids have in school. And I would just make my scribbles and say, all right, here's what I did, what I was thinking. That was a big part. Why did I get into this trade? 
And then why did it go wrong? What was I thinking? And then that, know what I do now is I don't do it as much because I'm getting older now. I don't need to keep a journal. I take this step. What I find is to be great is now you could just take a screenshot. You know, we didn't have screenshots back in the day. We're, well, I'm an old guy. You had to write stuff down on pieces of paper. Now you could take a screenshot and just draw your notes on the chart and save that, make that your trading journal. Go back and learn from your mistakes. That's what this whole thing is about. Finding what works, as much as it sounds kind of silly, finding what works, it's avoiding all the other things that don't work and making sure you don't stray from the path. I believe in my VWAP. I believe in these reversion trades. I love gaps that fade and come back around the VWAP. And that's what I do. And I'm content. Right. Good with what you know and, and really good at what you do. So let's hit some of these questions we got about trading from our listeners and followers this week. Are you ready to hit the bid? Yeah, man. The very first one come from Taziki996, who asked very simply, what is trading? And we get this question all the time. What's the difference between investing and trading? Well, what is trading? Let's ask a trader, Kenny Glick, what is trading to you? Wow. First thing is, I, I use this saying a lot, trading is not investing. Okay. I don't know what these companies do. Let's take, for instance, these NFT stocks that came out of nowhere. I don't want to know about what these are. To me, this is like the craziest move. I mean, this market's in a bubble and a bubble and a bubble. But again, going back to my point is that I just trade the letters and the price. The price action is where it's all at. But as far as what is trading, what is trading? We are trying to get in while the motion is happening intraday, as far as trading is concerned, is what I'm talking about, is I'm looking for a specific move during the day. And I'm talking about between the 8.30 and 11.30. That little window of time is all I need to make a living doing this. So what's the difference between trading and investing? Investing, by definition, is you are researching the company. You are getting to know what this company does, and you are buying into that company because you believe. You have Apple products all around your house. You buy stock you're an investor. For me, I'm looking to see what Apple does in the next 20 minutes, get in, get out, make some money and and move on. That's the biggest difference. I'm nimble and I'm ready to rock and roll. Not emotionally connected to the stocks that you're trading, not really caring too much about the fundamentals, about how Apple's event went when it rolled out to new products. <laughs> and, so, and then, then investing is that long-term marathon running where you're building a long-term portfolio to grow money over time. Traders are in and out on the daily. And that's so important for people because they get that confused all the time. And you know what? The financial media often confuses that all the time too. Traders did this, traders did that. Traders do a lot of inner work during the course of the day. They move the markets around, but then there's investors who are in it through their retirement plans or just their own brokerage accounts that are in it for the long term. Key difference there and a good question there. Great question here with someone with a great handle. Beard is my uniform, Kenny, who asks what ratios or methods are best for finding a good entry point to buy a stock? Oh, all right. I don't know exactly what you mean by ratio, but the way I do it, I'm a volume weighted average price trade. VWAP is my life. So I look for stocks that are going to have more volume on the day. And when you're going to have more volume? News. When is the biggest news? earnings season. So right now, as we're talking, this is my candy land. We've got companies reporting earnings. We're going to always have motion when they report because they're going to be good. They're going to be bad. You're going to have your analysts coming out, upgrades, downgrades. VWAP and earnings season go hand in hand. So all I'm looking for are stocks that are gapped up on good news because generally you get a reversion, you get some selling or stocks that 
Maybe you're getting hammered on the earnings report. You'll find some short covering and some dollar cost averaging guys, and you'll get a reversion to the VWAP. So as long as there's a gap, I'm looking to play it, and I'm looking, obviously, around my VWAP and my multiple time frame VWAPs. And when you do, you're looking at, obviously, your charts. you got your, your watch list with the stocks that you're following, but you're also watching those ticks minute by minute looking at where the last trades were, right? Right, exactly. The one-minute VWAP is your standard in the industry. So what I do is I just plot the price. I like to take a look at what goes on in the pre-market, what goes on in the aftermarket. Because what happens in the pre-market, a lot of times, you'll get those whipsaws. Then the next session, you want to test those levels. So the VWAP's giving you what side of the market to be on. And then you look at the go test those levels from the prior day, which is maybe the aftermarket or even that pre-market. Another question here from Christy Victori, who asks, what are the most important things to look for when reading and analyzing charts? Kenny, what are you looking at? I look at a combination of the long-term chart, let's say a yearly, sometimes even like two or three years, just to get a feel for where that stock's been doing. You know, something's been hammered down coming off really, really high levels, that's when I'll start looking at the one or two day chart to see if that long-term chart is going to give me an indication of maybe where that bottom's found. You know, if you're looking at a two-year chart and you found a two-year low, then fast forward to where you're looking on a daily chart or like a one day. And then if those levels hold, then you know you're ready to rock and get involved. A lot of technical analysts and technical traders and day traders are also looking at that support and resistance, right, for individual stocks. Did it bounce off a low? Is it hitting resistance at the top? Do you ever look at those? Absolutely. I kind of call it the exhaustion situation formation, ESF. When I find a stock, and I love stocks that have gotten beat down because obviously in the days of the GameStop, and everybody knows about a short squeeze now, the definition of a short squeeze, classic on the GameStop. I love stocks like GameStop. I can pat myself on the back. Not that I held that thing to 300, but we were in it before the whole thing got started because of the long-term chart. There's a point where the exhausted sellers just don't want to sell anymore. And then you're just waiting for it to come off that floor. So like I was saying before, if you can isolate that chart on a long-term perspective, then focus on what you're doing on a daily and it's a great combination. Question here, Kenny, from WBlanc23, who asks, what should be the main thing to consider when swing trading? And if you wouldn't mind, just define what you think swing trading means. Oh, man, I love these questions. A lot of people ask me, can I use VWAP with swing trading? But before I answer that, let me talk about what swing trading is to a lot of people. It's a day trade that's gone bad, okay? You're in a stock, you want it to work right now, and it's going against you. And next thing you know, you say, well, I guess I'll hang on to it for the next couple of days. Next thing you know, you're a swing trader. The better swing trader starts off by looking at it on the day. You're looking at the long-term chart. You're looking at your chart that's happening right now. If your day trade goes well, why not parlay that into the swing trade? Most of the time when I'm looking at a swing trade, I'm not getting into this thinking, hey, let me get into this for the next three days. I've isolated it coming off a longer term chart. The day trade has gone well. So if I'm in a stock, let's say 17 bucks, and now it's at 17.50, I'm selling into it. Next thing you know, it's three o'clock. This thing's at 17.75. Now I'm thinking, hey, maybe I hang on to the last couple of lots. I'm profitable. If it goes wrong tomorrow, at least I'm not losing money. But now I've taken a profitable day trade and I've morphed it into the swing trade. So swing trading to me still is born out of the good day trade. Right. So when you, if you're doing it, 
What are the main things you should consider when you're doing? Well, the main thing you should consider is the longer term chart, obviously. You know, you're not looking at minute to minute generally. For me, swing trades are always, I'm looking for bottoms, okay? I don't like shorting swing trades because then you're exposed to unlimited risk. Obviously, you know about shorting. Stock could go up forever. Most of the time, my swing trades are going to be longs. So I'm looking for stocks that have been on a downtrend that have made their pivot. Uh, I don't want to get too technical, but it's called an engulfing candle. So if you see a stock that's been, let's say, chopping around for three or four days, and that fifth day, that one candle engulfs those prior four or five candles, that's your bullish moment. That's when you can react to that and make that a swing trade because usually that's a massively bullish indicator that you've just engulfed all of that weakness and now you're ready to make a little bit of a move higher. Don't be afraid to go near engulfing candles. We love engulfing candles at Investopedia. We got a whole cellar full of wax. Question here, Kenny, from Abhishek, who asked us to explain open interest. I'm going to do the Investopedia definition of open interest, but I actually want to know from you as a trader how you think about it. So Investopedia defines open interest as the total number of outstanding derivative contracts, such as options or futures, that have not been settled for an asset. That's the technical definition for us. For you as a trader, how do you think about it? That's the classic definition because that's what it is. The way I look at it is if you're an options trader, the Nigerians are always talking about this, just big volume, just following the money. So open interest, when I'm looking at it, is if I see a lot of contracts being traded and the open interest, let's say, is 300. And next thing you see, 2,000 contracts traded on something that only has open interest of 200 contracts, that gives me an idea that I better follow the money or at least keep an eye on that stock to see if those guys who are buying those massive amount of contracts know something. Because that's the idea. The big money just made a big bet. Let's join in and follow the money. Right, A little chum in the water when you know that there's that much activity going around a certain equity or a stock or an option, you know there's going to be some sort of move. So I get how you would follow a great answer. There's also a little bit of a follow-up on open interest. Some people use it as the penny. Come options expiration, a lot of times the trade through the algorithms gravitate towards where the open interest is and that's where the option kind of dies. It, it's kind of like, where could we screw the most people? And that's where the contract lands. And all the people with their open interest, they expire to zero. It's called pinning. It, it's a real thing. It's something to know that goes on during options expiration. That's why the half numbers and the whole numbers are really, really key on Fridays. Right. And especially around those triple witching and quadruple witching days, which are always so popular at Investopedia because everyone's looking up those terms. Question here, Kenny, from Chrysostomos Patharas, who asks, when I read that 90% of traders lose their money, do I have any luck to earn any money as a trader? Good question. You're a veteran trader. Everyone loses money when they're trading, but it doesn't mean you have to forever. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was one of the lucky ones. I mean, my learning curve came after. It's because I got a little bit overconfident and I started getting a little cocky and arrogant. That's when I got a couple of smackdowns in, in, in my career. But it, it's true. Most people are not disciplined. And again, that's what, what I teach, the, the VWAP and the reversion trade. It's so mechanical, so mathematical. Not that you need math. There'll be no math on this quiz because the, the chart's doing it for you, okay? But because the discipline is instilled in you as a VWAP trader, it's really about you. If you slip, you're going to lose. But if you stay disciplined, use the VWAP, know your levels, you're going to be the guy that does succeed 
just, again, you beat the word discipline and money management. Never want to, again, money management and discipline go hand in hand because you're being disciplined about your money management. So you got the setup. You just got to be disciplined about it. And of course, when you're wrong, just don't stay wrong. Because look at, like I said, you could have something that works 99% of the time. That 1% will get you. Because if that's a terrible trade, it's going to blow you out of the water. So, you know, the way to get over that learning curve and the way to be the 10% or however the percentage of successful guys is find what works with you. I I love to make everybody a VWAP trader. Some people it doesn't gel with. I don't know why. But if you find what works, do that over and over again. Let making money be redundant. And monotonous. Good question here from Miss Leslie Witt, who asks, what is the best book or resource for novices who want to get into trading? It's You've learned a long time ago, but if you were introducing somebody to it today, Kenny, where would you guide them? I like Jeff Hirsch, the Stock Traders Almanac, just gives you a feel of the day by day and the seasonality of the market. There's also a great book, Reminiscence of the Stock Operator, which is always a great book. One of my favorite books, I don't even know if it's still out there, but it's a book about mistakes. It's the 20 common mistakes every day trader makes. When you read this book, I think it's maybe a 60-page, kind of like a pamphlet. If you go on Amazon, I think it's $4. It's the best $4 you'll ever spend in this industry by far because it highlights every mistake that you'll ever make as a trader. And when you read it, you'll say, oh, did that, did that, did that. And you know, like we've been saying, there's the discipline. Those are the mistakes. Avoid what's in that book and stick with to what works. So if you, I, I don't have the title for you right now. If you Google it, it's something, I think it's called the 20 common mistakes of a trader. The best book you'll ever read. Good question here from Chelly CP who asks, what are inverse ETFs? What are they good for? What are the pros and cons? What do you think, Kenny? Ooh. Inverse ETFs. Well, basically, you're going the opposite way that you know. Most people, when you think of the market, it's buy, right? Buy low, sell high. The inverse ETF tries to package a reason to go short. So, for instance, you've got the QQQ, which hardly ever goes down because it's been a bull market since. The most popular technology sort of ETF with all the big players, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, the biggest one by Invesco. Right. So if you want to short it, you got to come up with, you know, $337 to short some QQQ. And again, that might be above your budget. But if you want to short the QQQ, you could also buy SQQQ, short QQQ. And it's only, what is it now, $11. So obviously, you know, it's not going to move a lot, but that's the way to play the market short by just buying a stock. So at least you're not risking, you know, you don't have unlimited risk because again, every time you short a stock, in theory, you have unlimited risk. Here you could buy an inverse ETF like an SQQ, or if you wanted to bet against, let's say uh, the financial industry, you got FAZ. It's a great way to play, you know, the short side because you're limiting your risk, obviously. And it's the index all wrapped up into one ETF. And again, it's easier to buy something than to short. Sometimes you just can't short it depending on your circumstance with margin and all that. Right. And the key thing about inverse anything is it's the opposite trend of whatever else you were looking at. So you mentioned QQQ is if you wanted to bet against technology stocks, you'd buy an inverse ETF that bets against the technology sector. Great question. Great answer. Thank you, Kenny. Thanks. 
what's the best time of day for day traders to trade the market? I know you like the early part of the day, Kenny, but what is generally the best time? Oh, there's no question. It's 8.30 to 11.30. That is my window. That is my time to shine. That's when most of the money is being put to use. Uh, the middle of the day, you can trade the middle of the day, but you've got to remember it's going to be more of the sideways action. You're consolidating the move that happened in the first couple of hours. So you're going to get that chop. You've got to be really, really patient. But then if you want to come back in the afternoon, you're basically three o'clock to four o'clock, you'll have stocks will go back into the trend. But for me, and as far as I'm concerned, and this is going on forever, that 8.30, you know, a little pre-market action just to get a feel, and then the open till about 11.30, that is by far the best time to trade. And then a nice lunch and perhaps a siesta. And if you want to come back in the afternoon and get back into it, you can do it towards the close. Exactly. Usually it's your choice. That's the best part to be. You know, if you can make your days pay at the beginning of the day, and then it's your choice. And again, there comes that discipline again. You choose whether or not you trade. If you have a trade that comes along that meets your criteria at three o'clock, then do it. For me, I know where my go-to trades are, and most of them happen in the morning. So at the end of the day, yeah, I'll dip in a little bit, but most of the time my day's over. What you said is so important because nobody ever lost money not making a trade. Nobody's forcing you to do anything here, but if you see the opportunity, you can go for it. But like you said, if you do nothing, you're fine too. Make your money early, get out, and don't take it overnight with you. Oh, yeah. You know, I come in every day. I'm like, I have no intentions of trading unless I find one of my trades. Like every day I quit. Every day I'm done. I'm retired every day unless I find one of my trades. Oh, and I just happen to find three or four every day. Yeah. So I am not anxious to trade. I'm a professional non-trader. And that's a hard trade. Sitting in front of this computer with all my beautiful screens and all this, all this stuff going on, I want to push the button. But there are times where you just don't want to push the button and not trading is a trading, is trading. It's called being flat. You're that professional. You're that skilled that you realize there's nothing worth putting your money in. And that's professional trading. I'm flat. I don't see anything. That's great advice. And I think a lot of people need to adhere to that because they feel the pressure to do something all the time, whether it's make a trade, follow other people into a trade, do something that they're not comfortable with. And that's usually when you lose money, especially when you're chasing the herd on, on some of these mania stocks. Right. Absolutely. You're a trader, but you're also an educator. You have people who come into your forums all the time. You put a lot of good content out there on social media and through your channels. How do people find you? How do our listeners find you if they want to learn more or just follow what you're doing? Well, I do a couple of YouTube videos. I got, I got a couple thousand YouTube videos. I'm doing them since YouTube started. Basically, the grandfather of day trading, almost the grandfather of content on YouTube. Uh, it was me and three other guys talking about the stocks on YouTube. Now there's about 10,000 guys that are all geniuses. Everyone's a genius now. And that's the thing about the bull market. When you go up for nine straight months, everyone's a genius. But then you get some volatility. It separates the good traders from, from the guys that were getting lucky. My website's hitthebid.com. Um, hit the bid radio on YouTube. But if you just Google me, Kenny Glick, you will find a, a wonderful world of uh, obscure videos. Some of them are a little bit off color. I'm a comedian. But yeah, if you, if you Google Kenny Glick, you will, you will enter my world and you may never escape. So much fun. And you got great taste in music and you're a great educator. So we fit, or you fit right into the Investopedia family. Kenny Glick, thanks so much for joining us this week on The Express. Thanks for having me on, my man. It's terminology time, time for educated investors like us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Brent Anderson out of Fort Bragg, California. 
beautiful up there in NorCal, and Brent will be sporting the devilishly handsome Investopedia socks on his afternoon walks. Brent suggests warrant shares, and given what we were talking about earlier with SPACs and how the SEC may vote to classify SPAC warrants as liabilities instead of equity, Brent's suggestion is timely. Warrants, according to Investopedia, are a derivative that give the right, but not the obligation, to buy or sell a security, most commonly in equity, at a certain price before expiration. The price at which the underlying security can be bought or sold is referred to as the exercise price or strike price. An American warrant can be exercised at any time on or before the expiration date, while European warrants can only be exercised on the expiration date. Warrants that give the right to buy a security are known as call warrants. Those that give the right to sell a security, they're known as put warrants. Good suggestion, Brent. Enjoy your socks. We'll let the legendary Jack Schwager take us out this week. Jack is revered among traders, and he penned the book Market Wizards, among others. He's been studying and trading markets his whole adult life, and about six years ago, he came into our offices at Investopedia for a video interview, and to be honest, I really didn't know who he was. I do now, and I realize that we were in the presence of a Hall of Famer in the world of stock trading. Here's Jack preaching the gospel about risk management. Good traders will understand that the key to surviving and let alone flourishing as a trader is is paying more attention to risk management, preservation of capital, than it is to necessarily to the trading uh, trading technique or your way of uh, picking trades. Uh, if you can't uh, make sure you don't lose too much money on any particular trade, sooner or later you will fail. So that's probably comes even before uh, the methodology. That's great advice from one of the original day traders out there. Stay humble, stay within your own risk parameters, and stay smart as always. Thanks for riding with us this week on the Investopedia Express. Follow us on the daily with our newsletters, our social feeds, including Instagram, where I'll be hosting a live special Q&A session later this week. Find us there or right here or a little further on down the line. Be traveling, damaging this thesis is unraveling. Spacks are a navigant. Do it look like I'm panicking? Some guy shook and froze up like a mannequin. But me, I ain't abandoning them. I've been had a plan for them. This is what